Welcome back to the program. In America today, we've developed what amounts to an addiction industrial complex. Billions each year are spent in both public and private dollars to treat, cure, and mitigate addiction. But is it working? Are today's so-called best practices having measurable, metric-driven results? If not, what are we doing wrong? My guest, Dr. Mark Lewis, believes that the current approach of treating addiction as a disease lies at the heart of our repeated failures and frustration. In his new book, The Biology of Desire, he walks us through the lives of five people who have journeyed in and out of addiction and shows us what we might do differently. Dr. Mark Lewis is a neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, a neuroscientist examines his former life on drugs. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Lewis here to talk about the biology of desire, why addiction is not a disease. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. How did we get into this business of looking at addiction as a disease and treating it within the context of this disease model of medicine? It evolved um, gradually over the last century or so. Um, ever since the, the early 1900s, there have been some who have said that, uh, opiate addiction, for example, is, is a disease. And then Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in thirty in five classified uh, part of the way they defined addiction was as a as an allergy and uh, but still they didn't conceive of it as a disease in the way that we do now and then it the medical um, community began to join hands with Alcoholics Anonymous in the 50s and 60s and that's when residential treatment became um, available and eventually became the norm for treating addiction uh, and then came the 90s the decade of the brain and guess what addiction is now defined as a chronic brain disease so now there was some some uh, data and some fancy-looking uh, brain scans to support the, the model, and um, so it's continued to grow in that fashion. How has the mental health community looked at addiction within the context of various versions of DMS and, and simply the way the mental health community has looked at addiction as something they could treat? So you have to divide the mental health community into two components at least. One is psychiatry and the other is psychology. And psychiatry obviously is part of medicine, and so for them, using the DSM as a guide uh, and so forth, they have um, particular treatments available, but unfortunately, they don't work very well. And treatments are really only available for, um, well, for opiate addiction. You've got opiate substitution therapy, which means used to mean methadone, and now it means suboxone mostly. And these are drugs which are also opiates and replace one addiction for another and then sometimes people get tapered, uh, but often they remain on these drugs for long periods of time. So it doesn't really cure or, or uh, help to, to uh, salvage the problem. Um, the psychologists, on the other hand, uh, view addiction as um, a psychological problem, and they deal with it through um, psychotherapy techniques such as um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and uh, motivational interviewing and acceptance, uh, uh, ACT, what does that stand for? Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And there's all these different therapeutic approaches, even uh, nowadays the mindfulness meditation approaches beginning to make real headway. So there's a, a, quite a variety if you, if you look at it that way. How has the failure rate been justified within the medical community? Because as you talk about in the biology of desire, and as I think most people know, the failure rate is really high in terms yeah. of the way addiction is treated. Absolutely, and that's a really interesting point because 
the failure rate is really high. We all know about the revolving door syndrome, and most of the people in rehab at any given time are not there for the first time. They're there for their second or third or fourth or eighth time, uh, and it, it, the number keeps climbing. It, it's notoriously uh, uh, inefficient. And they justify it, interestingly, by saying we have to throw more money at it and do more research. And this is, this is for example, Nora Volko talking, the head of, of um, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is a part of the NIH, which has uh, huge amounts of money to spend on neuroscientific research, which mostly has to endorse the, um, the notion that addiction is a pathology or else they wouldn't be getting the funds. And so, you know, that's, that's, been, that's been the generic response. We need more money, we need more research, because if it's not working well enough, then we need to do more of it and do it better. And of course, to me, the obvious interpretation is, you're doing it wrong, we need to take a different approach. And talk a little bit about the, the general framework of the approach that you talk about in the biology of desire. What underlies it? So my approach to understanding addiction is based on learning, that it is a, it is a habit, obviously. It's a learned habit. Um, it's a very powerful habit and one that's it's difficult to break um, because it, uh, the brain is a, ha- a habit-forming machine. The brain is highly plastic. It continues changing throughout the lifespan. And one of the problems with a disease model is that it uh, presumes that the brain changes in addiction are, first of all, unique, and second of all, permanent. And neither of those is, is true. The, we have similar brain changes when actually uh, all kinds of addictions, including gambling and sex addiction and all the rest of it. But even when people fall in love, um, mating and, and, and sexual uh, attraction is also underpinned by the flow of dopamine to, to various regions and changes in, in the circuitry of those regions. So my approach is let's talk about it in terms of learning, let's understand it as, a, as deep learning or accelerated learning because it's driven by attraction to a very powerful goal. And that goal, the more it's pursued, the more you're laying down neural pathways, neural connections, the more you lay down those connections, the more it, shall we say, overtakes um, the neural real estate and pushes aside um, the circuitry that's available for other pastimes, other activities. And then where it does that, that feedback loop, uh, makes it such that the person becomes highly focused on a very narrow range of goals, and that is the kind of insidious nature of addiction. Because once that happens, you're you're stuck, and you're always thinking about it, and dreaming about it, and waiting for, and uh, planning for the next next time that you do it, whether it's drugs, gambling, or whatever it happens to be. One of the key parts of that is this pleasure-seeking desire that you talk about that that's inherent, which is anathema to a lot of people in terms of admitting it and within the context of kind of a puritanical culture. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems indulgent. You know, people call it pleasure-seeking, but let's face it, we are seeking pleasure all the time. When You're looking forward to lunch right now or breakfast or dinner or what you're going to watch on TV. I mean, these are all forms of self-indulgence, but there's nothing evil about them. We're designed to go after things that feel good and to uh, avoid things that feel bad. This is the basic design of all all mammals. I mean, perhaps all animals. Um, and and so, I think we have to kind of put that puritanical viewpoint aside and say um, we're not Victorians anymore. Pleasure-seeking is not wrong. And secondly, it's not just about pleasure. A lot of addictive activities are about um, uh, relief, 
Um, so people who are depressed or anxious, as many of us are some of the time, sometimes a lot of the time, um, people with PTSD, people who have different kinds of psychological issues, uh, are getting some relief out of the addictive activity. And they're, I mean, that's considered to be a kind of uh, self-medication. That's, that's the self-medication model of addiction that, that aversive experiences in childhood, for example, set you up because, let's face it, the addictive activity takes you out of yourself gives you something to focus on, provide structure for your life, and uh, provide some, some relief from those, um, those difficulties. How much of the problem comes from the fact that we've developed this large rehab industry, both inside and outside the medical community, that really relies on this other model we were talking about? Yeah, a lot. The, the rehab industry is getting, really, is getting rich off this model, and, and it's a very powerful industry. Uh, partly because it's connected with the courts on the one hand and medicine on the uh, the medical community on the other hand. So uh, the rehab rehab centers are charging anywhere from fifteen to a hundred thousand dollars per month in the U.S. That's a lot of money, way too much money for most people. Or people will have to, uh, um, you know, uh, give up their life savings in order to send a kid through through the rehab, which is not likely to to work. I'm talking about residential rehab centers. Um, inpa- uh, outpatient set- treatment organizations generally work better because they don't take the addict out of his environment and then send him back again, uh, which, which is obviously the, the trigger for uh, going back into the addiction. So, um, yeah, the rehab industry, it, it continues to, here's the door, uh, uh, come on in. Yes, it's a lot of money, but think how much suffering and, and cost down the line you're going to save by sending sending us your wounded, uh, and we're going to fix them up because we know what to do, because we've got a doctor on staff, and in fact, they don't know what to do, and that's why the, the failure rates are so high. Now that we have so much scientific information about the brain and that we can do these functional MRIs and that we can find out more about what's under the, all of this, to what extent mm-hmm. is that helping make the case for the approach that you're talking about? That, that research gets bifurcated into two different interpretations. Um, so people who see addiction as a pathology will look at the brain changes, especially in the striatum. The striatum is a part of the brain that's been around for hundreds of millions of years, and it, it, its job is to direct us toward our goals, is to induce us to pursue our goals. It's obviously a critical thing for any animal to do, um, and it also creates the feeling of desire or craving, which is uh, subjectively a very powerful and difficult uh, obstacle for addicts to overcome. So what some people will say is that the changes in the striatum and especially the changes that underlie compulsive behavior make it a disease because it's, well, you've heard the expression, addiction hijacks the brain or drugs hijack the brain. Um, Whereas there are others of us and perhaps a smaller quite a bit uh, smaller contingent that says uh, these brain changes should be understood in terms of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity has been studied a lot in the last few decades. We, um, we should know by now that brains never finish changing. They're always changing. That's what they do until the, the, the moment of death. I mean, people, brains change massively in response to a stroke, in response to uh, uh, any kind of injury, including a concussion. They're very plastic. People who go blind start to see the world with their auditory cortex, and people who go deaf start to hear the world by, uh, by tapping other circuits. It's, it's an incredibly plastic uh, organ. And so 
those of us who look at it from that kind of perspective say, you know, let's, let's put this thing in context and recognize it as, yes, it's a change. It's part of an ongoing developmental process. It's not the end of the road. And when we treat it that way, in the ways that you talk about, what kind of success rates do we have, and are they significantly better than what we've seen in the disease model? It's, it's really hard to separate those things out. So people who go to rehab centers that, that, that identify addiction as a disease, and about 80% of them do that. Um, maybe it's 90, maybe it's 80, it's somewhere up there. But they offer a whole bouquet of, of services, um, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are based on 12-step methods, the AA approach. Um, and, and so although they call addiction a disease, they don't treat it as one. They treat it with this kind of quasi-religious approach um, that's been around for almost 100 years now. And I'm, I'm not bashing AA. I think it, it can be effective for some people, although for many people it's not. It's not the right. Uh, it doesn't work very well. If the success rates are not great. But they also, these programs also offer CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or at least they say they do, and they have lots of group process where people sit around and talk about their problems, and sometimes that's useful and sometimes it's not. It's, so it's kind of ironic that even though they consider addiction to be a disease, there's only a fairly uh, limited uh, um, proportion of what they offer that is based in medicine. So it's hard, it's hard to say, okay, so what's the alternative? How well does it work? How well does CBT work? Well, it works better not in a group process because if you actually see a therapist who gets to know you and you can talk to them and get to know yourself through that process, that's going to be more effective than sitting in a group and, you know, kind of repeating slogans and so forth. Right. And there's other new approaches coming out all the time. Motivational interviewing has been shown to be um, quite effective. I don't have stats in front of me. But this is a way for people to get in touch with their own motives, their own belief systems, so that they can consciously take stock of what they're doing, what they're pursuing, and what they really want to be doing, and trying to make changes accordingly. This approach of making changes, the ideas that you talk about in the biology of desire, are they more individually based, or is there still a community element to them that can be useful? Yeah, there's both. In the book, I, um, I go through the biographies of five people who I've gotten to know really well through interviews, um, and I, I describe in detail how they became addicted and what it was like during their addiction and how they, they got out, how they recovered. Uh, each of them is now doing fine, as far as I know. Uh, and I, I end the book by trying to say, okay, what looking, what I'm doing is not just presenting a neuroscientific uh, analysis, but I'm trying to fuse the neuroscience of addiction with the stories of people's lives. So putting together the experience of addiction with the biology of addiction. And at the end of the book, I, I come out, the last chapter says, okay, so what are we going to do with this? How is this going to... Uh, what kind of implications are there for treatment? And I think there are two things. One is that it, it's it's a bit hard to summarize this, and but I, I'll try. It's um, a big part of addiction is what I call now appeal, which is tendency to um, overvalue immediate rewards. So to get highly attracted to rewards that are just it, right around the corner, and to undervalue long-term rewards. That's a, a well-studied phenomenon, and it's called delayed discounting by psychologists. Um, and because of that, addicts get kind of trapped in this ongoing preoccupation with the present, so they lose touch with their past and with their future, which makes it really hard to gain perspective and to, and to uh, get out of it. Part of what group support offers is groups can help you 
reflect, get a reflection on who you are, where you belong, feel like a part of something, and that helps you to extend your sense of yourself both into the past, where I come from, how I got here, and into the future, how, where do I want to be, not, not in six hours, but you know, in, in six weeks. So there's a group part that's really important, but the individual part is also important, and that often involves the sense of empowerment, the being able to connect your desire for change with an actual plan, a set of, a set of uh, steps that you want to go through that you've devised in order to get yourself out of the addictive habit. Both are important. It's interesting in talking about those because in some ways they go against cultural norms that we live with, which is often based on a kind of immediacy, a kind of instant gratification, and right. that so much that's going on in society today, the speed at which it's changing, is, is leads to a sense of, of lack of empowerment for so many people, yes. so that both of these things are really antithetical to what's really needed for, for the cure. Yeah, it's delay discounting or now appeal is, it, first of all, it's a very general phenomenon. In fact, uh, it can be seen in, in other animals, even in birds, they, they will work harder for an immediate reward of lower value than they will for a larger reward of higher value that's in, uh, that's in the future. Um, so that's built into the machinery, but also we've got a culture, as you say, that uh, refines that, reflects it, um, amplifies it into a, a way of life. And so, yeah, everything is uh, instantaneous, fast food, fast this, fast that. Uh, and that, that mode of thinking, what's important is what's right in front of me right now, indeed, is not very helpful. When, uh, in, and that's why, in part, addiction is becoming such a widespread phenomenon, because people have kind of lost the sense of how to think in longer terms about it, about a future and about uh, uh, about stuff that's not immediately available, but stuff that you have to work for, stuff that you know requires some commitment and some uh, some effort. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a it's a larger issue in that sense. The irony is that it does at the same time go to the heart of your argument because it means that if we see if we're seeing an increase in addiction rates and we're seeing it arguably for some of those reasons, shouldn't we be looking at the causes as we try and figure out the solutions? Absolutely. So when when people say, as they often do, that um, we need the disease model because otherwise how are addicts going to get the treatment that they need if we don't call it a disease and that is to say if they can't you know, get insurance to cover their uh, treatment and so on and so forth. But we deal with a lot of social problems in very different ways. Racism is an example. Uh, bullying is another example. These are both widespread phenomena built into our society and our culture and we know that they're bad and we know that we need to fix them so we, we use education, we, use, um, uh, we publicize the problem, we help people become aware of it in their communities, in their environments, in themselves. And so there is a way to approach problems that are built into the culture that requires willpower, requires effort on all our parts, and th but they can be very effective. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the anti-racism efforts in the United States have been effective in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think the same kind of approach could be taken to addiction. Dr. Mark Lewis, the book is The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Okay.